a ministry of Community Bible Church, on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly or accurately dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. If you have a particular issue that you want to discuss from God's word or maybe trying to understand a passage or how it applies to your life or ministry today, you can email us here directly in the studio. The email address is TBL. It stands for the Bible line, TBL at dot. Net, or you can call us directly. And again, the number is 843-525-1859. 525-1859, area code 843. Or you can use our toll-free number. We have internet listeners who listen every week in different parts of the country. And that number is 877, the call letters WAGP980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and we're happy to receive it that way as well. Well, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started today. Indeed, we do have a dictated question. came in just a few minutes ago from a caller who says that she and her husband always tithe. He's disabled, so she works. They've had some unexpected expenses. For example, the car broke down and was very expensive to fix. So they're now wondering if they should suspend tithing or if she should perhaps get a second job until the loan is paid off. Well, you know, tithing is not like a magic bullet that if you tithe, you'll have no financial challenges or other issues. I have a course that we offer at searchthescriptures.org. It's very, very detailed. Uh, It walks through first the issues of stewardship, uh, the fact that we are stewards, that it's not our money, that in the end, uh, God himself will give us, asked us to give an account for how we used his money. And by that matter, it's not a 90, 10% relationship either. It's all God's, 100%. The tithe is a constant reminder when we give 10% to our local assembly that we're a part of. It's a, it's a reminder that it all belongs to God. And it's not simply an issue of percentages. It's ultimately an issue of the heart because um, God calls us to be cheerful givers. And he speaks not just of the tithe, but also the offering. The spirit of God can direct our lives in a way where he might call us to give beyond a tithe. But certainly I think you can argue that tithing is applicable for today. It's not simply an Old Testament practice because it was instituted ever before the law was established. Abraham commences it, Jacob continues it, Malachi commands it, Christ commends it, and we are not to cancel it. And to do so is to be guilty of breaking and teaching others to break a law or a principle of God. So before you just say tithing has no application for us today 
because I know there are people listening who say, well, I've, I've heard so-and-so, and he says that tithing is just an Old Testament practice, and we don't need to do it today. Be very careful before you make that conclusion, because Jesus said, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And virtually for 1900 years of church history, there was one unanimous voice, whether it was the early church fathers, the late church fathers, the Protestant reformers, they all taught that tithing was applicable for God's people in every generation. And I would agree with that. And the idea that it doesn't apply today, I think, is a new idea in the realm of church history, and I think it's incorrect. With that said, when you have this car difficulty, what it tells me is that there's other issues that I know you're well-meaning on, but you probably need to get a hold on, because the Bible speaks not just of giving, it also speaks about debt, it also speaks about saving. For instance, in uh, Proverbs chapter 6, uh, God gives us some real plain, uh, a very plain admonition. Uh, and he says, go to the ant or sluggard and observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. And so in the course that I teach, we deal with stewardship, we deal with saving, we deal with giving, we deal with debt, we deal with uh, planning. The Bible teaches that we should plan or Today, maybe a modern component would be budgeting, and, and, also, and we also speak of investing. And so we look at those six avenues. And so God reminds us that in a time of plenty, we are to be wise. We don't say, oh, I've got all this extra money right now. Someone just blessed me with this gift or a, a birthday present, or I just inherited this small sum of money from my mother or whatever it might be. Um, God says, learn a lesson and be wise as you observe the ant. And so in time of plenty, she saves so that in time when there is no harvest, so to speak, she has something. And so ideally what should have happened when your car broke down and it was a costly expense that you guys had what we would call an emergency fund, uh, a saving fund where you were able to go to that fund and then draw out of it so, A, you didn't have to put it on a credit card and go into debt. Nothing wrong with using a credit card, but it's wrong, I believe, when you go into debt on credit. And it's very, very poor stewardship, especially with the interest rates of, you know, 18 to 24%. I mean, it's incredible. And they lure you in, you know, zero interest rates for six months, and then they whammo you. And um, so, so God's word is clear. And so I think there's some maybe more fundamental issues that you need to address. And my suggestion to you would be to go to searchthescriptures.org and listen to my course um, concerning how to use your money wisely. And there's a, there's a notebook that goes with it. And if you call Community Bible Church, you can order that uh, or you can order it at Search the Scriptures. And that's about 120 pages. And it would be a great thing for you and your husband together to work through and to fill out so that you are on the same page. So that as a team, you begin to manage your finances biblically. And this is just so very, very important. So to jettison tithing, because, you know, you guys haven't thought through is not really the answer. 
And people who think that way will never give faithfully because what it's really uh, surfacing is a bigger problem in terms of stewardship. And Jesus said this, if a person is not faithful in that which is another's, who will entrust true riches to him? In other words, if you're not faithful in another's money, and it is another's, it's God's, it's not yours, then God's not going to really entrust to you things that are of significant eternal value. And God wants to use us in eternal things. And so money very often really surfaces where we are in this whole process. So again, you know, Hosea the prophet says that God's people uh, suffer for lack of knowledge. And I really believe that's the day that we live in. Uh, we, we, we have a lack of knowledge. We really don't know what God says. And many times it beca- it, it's true because the Bible's no longer being taught faithfully on the Lord's day when God's people are gathered and at other times when they gather. So um, I hope that will get you started. The answer is not to jettison your tithing. The answer is to get down on your knees together, a husband and wife and say, Father, we've been less than faithful, probably largely due to our ignorance, but we want to today commit our lives to you and we want to commit our financial picture to you and we want to do it your way. And we want you to teach us and to help us to understand what that means. You know, I will not marry a couple. If someone comes to me and says, I want to get married, we know right off we've got a minimum of six months before we can even set a firm date. Why? Because I'm not in the marrying business. I'm in the business of building Christian homes. And there's a counseling process. And they have around 20 to 25 hours of homework that they do. And one of the things that they're required to do before uh, we will perform a marriage at Community Bible Church is they have to work through this course on finances. Why? Because we don't want them to, to especially young couples who are, you know, in their 20s and getting married. And we don't want them to make a lot of the mistakes that so many people in the world are doing. And that just puts all kinds of pressure on a home, on a family, when finances are mismanaged. So it's important is what I'm trying to say. All right, let's go on to the next question, Rick. I appreciate that caller. And again, I'm not here to slam them, to bang them. Uh, I just recognize the day that we live in that many of God's people are well-intentioned and they are just living in, well, sheer ignorance. That's really all it is. It's just ignorance. And uh, I don't necessarily entirely blame them, uh, but I recognize the pulpits in America are weak. And as Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6 says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And I think that's what we're seeing lived out in the day that we live in. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Uh, this call came in a couple of weeks ago, and the uh, situation has changed slightly, so I'm going to reflect that. But the Georgia legislature approved House Bill 757, the Religious Liberty Bill, which would have allowed religious and faith-based organizations to refuse to rent facilities for events that they found objectionable, such as same-sex marriages. Now, Governor Nathan Deal has gone ahead and vetoed the bill. Lay that aside, a local television station, WTOC, had editorialized that the governor should veto it. Now, the listener would like to know how Christians respectfully protest this kind of public stance by the media. 
Well, it is unfortunate that uh, the general manager at WTOC is far different than the prior one, who is much more conservative and reflected biblical moral values. So that is unfortunate. Um, But I will say this, in fairness to them, that at the end of those editorials, at least all that I've ever seen, it's been a while since I've actually uh, seen it, um, but they always say, if you would like to write, and you can write, and you can express your opinion, I don't think it's going to change that particular general manager's point of view. Uh, So I'm not sure what good it will do, and I've never, ever seen, maybe I've just missed it, WTOC come back and say, well, so-and-so, Dr. Brogy wrote in Buford, South Carolina, and he differed with us, and here is his rationale. I've never seen that. Maybe they do it. I've just never seen it. Maybe that dialogue can run on their Facebook page for whoever reads it. Um, But it, it is a reminder to me as a pastor that the church is called to be salt and light. And of course, one of the things that unfortunately we've jettisoned in the body of Christ is simple, basic evangelism. And when God's people stop sharing the plan of salvation and winning people to Christ, then the society uh, goes into more and more of a degenerate state. And that's what we're seeing here in America. We are witnessing before our eyes uh, the downgrade of a nation. And there are so many issues that are happening. And again, some of this comes back to the seeker-sensitive movement, the Bill Hybels, Rick Warren, Perry Noble movement in America, where God's Word is not faithfully taught on Sunday morning. You see, a healthy overflow of your relationship to Jesus Christ is ministry. It's out of the overflow of your love for Christ. People say, well, but they're seeing all these conversions in these seeker churches. Not very convincing to me because I meet the people who come out of just the three people's churches that I've named and they get transferred here or they move here, especially because we are a military community. We have people who come from all over the United States and typically when they come from one of these seeker churches, many of the churches that have baptized them and, you know, made them a quote-unquote member of their church, whatever they want to call their membership. They use a lot of creative names. The truth is, is that most of them I meet don't even know Christ, and they don't even know the gospel. And I'm thinking to myself, why did you get baptized? Uh, Why did that pastor baptize you? And it's like the blind leading the blind. And so we think in America the answer is political. Well, no, uh, revival is not going to come uh, through politicians in America. If the nation is going to be fundamentally changed, revival is going to come through the church. That's what the Word of God teaches. It's always Israel being a light to the Gentiles, and in this dispensation, it's God's people being a light to an unbelieving world. The political realm just ultimately reflects what is happening in the moral realm in a country. And this uh, is what is before us. Certainly, you know, uh, I I want a politician who's going to reflect godly values. But it doesn't matter what I want in a republic like we live here in America. Ultimately, it's the choice of the people. What do they want? And if they want someone who reflects biblical values, then we'll see that. If they don't, then we won't. And so, again, we need to put first things first. We don't put the card in front of the horse. And we need to put the horse in front of the cart. And our role as believers is to share Jesus Christ faithfully, consistently, 
Um, and that's one of the stewardships that every believer has. Some have the gift of evangelism, so you can't hide behind the fact that you don't and say, well, that's not my gift. It may not be your gift, but it is your responsibility if you know Christ. Just like I don't have the gift of serving, but he that would be great among you must be the servant of all. Uh, it's a responsibility every Christian has to do the work of an evangelist. And that is what is stopping in America. And so when you have fewer and fewer born-again Christians, when you have a generation of people where the highest percentage of born-again Christians in America are over the age of 50, and that group will be dying off in the next 15 to 20 years, then we're in for a real different kind of nation. Listen, you step onto any college campus in America. I worked on college campuses for 12 years, and I still have many of my friends who started with me who are still in campus ministry. And you speak to kids 18 to 22 years old, and it's scary. If this is the future of America, it's scary because the moral decline is incredible. And so this is where we are. So it is sad to me that Bill 757, that the governor of Georgia was so weak. They had weakened and watered down the bill so much that there was no reason why he couldn't sign it. But, you know, when you fear men more than you fear God, you'll do what men wants, what men want. And that's what's happening. And now North Carolina is facing the same issue. And, you know, people say, well, you know, if, uh, if, if they pass this bill, then the Olympic Committee is not going to even consider Atlanta as one of their choice cities. Oh, we don't want to lose, you know, $10 billion of revenue or whatever it is. I'm just making up a number. But that's what drives the ship. And that's very, very, very sad. Uh, that's, that's a moral climate that you don't want, but it's what we have right now. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our next listener writes, I was saved eight years ago through the radio ministry of Dr. Brogy. Since then, I joined an evangelical church four years ago after untangling from the Catholic Church, hoping to find a Bible-teaching and believing church. I thought I was in a faithful church, and I attended good adult Bible fellowships and helped and taught children's Sunday school for the past couple of years. This year, I'm a middle school youth group leader here. I'm so disturbed by what I see. Icebreaker skits and gross-out tactics and loud secular worship music and candy and soda for a half hour. I find this undignified and demeaning, followed by a short Bible scripture principle, and then we, as the youth leaders are expected to break out into small groups and go deeper and make relationships with these kids for the last 20 minutes. I ask around and people just say, this is how they've been doing it for years. This is just how evangelical churches are and that some youth pastors just happen to be more raw and real than others. Is this the kind of stuff you all do in your youth ministries? Maybe I don't belong in this church as I don't want to rock the boat or be divisive or not follow the philosophy and vision set forth at my church. I know your website says your church is non-denominational, but are you all evangelical like my church or part of the EFCA? Well, you're asking a lot of questions here. And again, this is a reflection of youth ministry in the church. You know, it's, it's very, very sad because, again, the Word of God is not being opened. And so what happens in a lot of churches in America 
is more and more kids aren't even in the worship service. Uh, for instance, New Spring Church, which is the biggest church here in South Carolina, you have to be at least 13 years of age to enter into the worship service. That's what they say. Uh, they say their um, services are PG-13 and that some of the things that they will discuss are not suitable for younger ears. Uh, that right there should alert you. There's a huge problem. And that is not uh, atypical. That, that, that has become more and more standard fare in, in American evangelicalism. So even the worship service itself, well, let's not have the kids in here. We'll have them in kids' church through the sixth grade. Oh, middle school, we'll create a middle school church because, you know, they need to be entertained. And high school, in fact, more and more mega churches have the kids separated all the way out through high school. I mean, think about the implication that that has. Number one, a pastor is supposed to preach the word. Someone came up to me on Sunday after church, and we are working through the book of Daniel, and uh, their 11-year-old was so excited. I had taken, uh, had taken incredible notes, uh, was learning so much. Uh, she told her mom the bulletin wasn't large enough that she needs to bring a notebook. You know, that that's exciting to me. We have basically... Um, you know, over-entertained and under-challenged the youth in America. Is it any wonder if Josh McDowell is correct that 78% of the youth, when they get out of high school, walk away from the evangelical church? Why is that? Because they're not converted. You know, if you have him, you can't lose him. If you've lost him, you never had him to begin with. That's what 1 John 2 teaches. Let me read that. Let me read that passage to you. It's an important passage, especially in the day that we live in, in light of what John says about coming events and things that are going to take place. He said, children, it is the last hour. Uh, We have been in the last of the last days, the Bible teaches, since the day of Pentecost. Excuse me, we've been in the last days since the day of Pentecost. I believe now we are in the last of the last days. What Daniel the prophet and what Paul uses in one passage is the latter times, the latter days. Children, it's the last hour. And just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know it's the last hour. So John is saying, listen, in the last days, uh, there will be Antichrist. There is a coming Antichrist, the Antichrist, to put the, the article in front of it. He's called by many different names, about 40 different titles in the Word of God. Uh, the term Antichrist is used only once in all the Bible in First John, but it's the most popular title uh, because uh, it's a good representative title. He comes in the place of Christ, and he really comes against Christ. Uh, there's a dual, dual nuance uh, to the word anti, the prefix. In either case, um, many antichrists have, have arisen. And so this is what Jesus taught in the kingdom parables in Matthew 13. Matthew 13 basically addresses, in light of the fact that Israel has rejected her Messiah, what is God's plan? And so in a series of parables, Jesus basically describes what will take place during the church age. And the Lord reminds us in Matthew 13 that just as there is good seed that is being sown, amongst uh, the world, even so there is evil seed. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. 
and the tares are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. That's the interpretation of uh, one of the parables, the, t- the parable of the tares among the wheat. And so Satan has been at work since the day of Pentecost. But one of the definitely um, acute prophecies that should surface to your mind is that in the end of the end days, in the last of the last days, you're going to see more and more of this activity. And this is what has now walked in the front door of the evangelical church. I wouldn't put my child in a youth ministry that was structured the way that you have described it in your email to us this morning. I I just wouldn't do it. I think your child would suffer. Now, sometimes, you know, parents come to a church and they say, well, what's your youth ministry like? That's the wrong question. That is the wrong question. The question you should be asking is, is what is the Sunday morning worship service like? And what is the pulpit like? Look, a youth ministry may only have your children three, four hours a week. There's 168 hours in every week. Um, And if you are counting on the youth ministry of a church to do your job, then there's real problems in your home. Now, let me just say, I'm not against youth ministry or the concept. Uh, I was one to Christ, not through my family, but through a youth ministry of sorts, a college ministry that was functioning on the college campus. And so there's God's ideal, but you also have to provide opportunities and outreach for people who don't fall under God's ideal. So in an ideal world, you know, the parents are born again. They're praying for their children from the time they're in the womb. They are looking for opportunities to teach and raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and to bring them to Christ. But a lot of people don't grow up in that world. And so the church is called to evangelize the lost and youth ministry might be one avenue in which to accomplish that. And let me say too, a youth ministry that says parents aren't welcome is a youth ministry that is following the spirit of the culture rather than the word of God. If your children go to a youth ministry where the mindset is it's uncool to be with your parents you are in a dangerously structured youth ministry. You want them to leave with, hey, it's a blessing to be with our parents. And I am to honor them and to respect them. And our parents should be welcomed into the youth ministry and feel the freedom to show up at any meeting and to participate in any meeting. And so kids will often sink to the lowest common denominator. And if a youth ministry is not structured around the Bible where the spirit of God is going to be present, then there's going to be a different spirit at work and your children are going to uh, depart uh, from uh, good sound biblical Christianity. So again, if you, if you want what most, most youth ministries in America are offering, send your kid there. You know, I, I had a, a pastor who recently called me uh, from Columbia, and he was telling me of a family that had uh, gone to New Spring Church in Columbia because the daughter insisted on it because they had the most creative youth ministry in Columbia. And so uh, they went for about three weeks, and finally the daughter, and the parents shouldn't have acquiesced to that. that that's the wrong question. Again, you know, what do, what do my kids want? That's not the question. Men are to be men. They are to be the spiritual shepherds of their home. 
They are not to ask, what do my kids want? Where do my kids want to go to church? Look, parent, if you're listening to me, your kids say, well, I want to go to such and such a church because that's where all my friends go. That's just, you know, bad thinking on their part. If the if their friends all go to a church that is solidly evangelical, then the dad might want to consider that church. But he doesn't acquiesce to the wishes of a child in foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. You, you just don't do that. You're to shepherd your kids. So this particular family, you know, yielded to the pressure of a daughter who wanted to go to New Spring Church in Columbia. But after three weeks, she said, Dad, I don't want to go anymore. What's the problem? Well, they're all having sex in the restrooms up there. And they're inviting me in, and I don't want to do that. Good night. What a disaster. But it doesn't surprise me. That is a reflection of evangelicalism in America. Let's go to the next question, Rick, and move forward here. All right. Uh, our next listener is from Walterboro. Paul says he has a friend who celebrates tabernacles, observes the dietary laws, and worships on Saturday, etc. They believe that they are saved by grace through faith, but believe they are honoring God and his commands by observing the Jewishness of Christianity. Are they sinning? What are your thoughts? Well, the passage that would come to my mind would be from the book of Colossians. So let me just turn over there for a second um, to Colossians chapter 2. Um, the apostle writes this, he says, therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or in respect to a, or in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul, of course, is addressing here some of the, you know, Old Testament issues uh, festivals. Uh, there were seven that were prescribed under the law, uh, Sabbath days that would often accompany uh, festivals and so forth. And so in the early church, you need to remember that it was a mixed church of both Jews and Gentiles. Initially, it's all Jewish, Acts 1 through 7. Then when you come to chapter 8, the first uh, mixed breed, so to speak, who are half Jewish and half Gentile, are one to Christ. They're called Samaritans. And then when you come to Acts 10, you find the very first Gentile converts. So initially the church is very Jewish, but eventually it becomes more and more Gentile. But you had a church that because we're born again and we are made members one of another, the dividing wall between Jew and Greek is removed. And so some people came out of a background of Jewishness, and then the question became, how much do we continue to practice this Jewishness? This, by the way, is one of the issues that came up in Acts 15, and I have a whole sermon on it in our series in Acts, if you are interested, uh, where there were some folks <laughs> who said, it said certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So there were two groups of people that Acts 15 deals with. The first group is mentioned in Acts 15:1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's one group. That's uh, the same kind of false teaching that had seeped into the Galatian church where they added a work to the finished work of Christ, which is not the same gospel. It's a different gospel. It's, uh, it's another gospel. It's less than true. And anyone who will, who will ever add some work, be it membership or baptism or whatever, as a necessity, uh, 
to salvation is preaching a different gospel. These are fruits of conversion. They are not the means to conversion. And so that's one group. The second is a sect of Pharisees who had believed. And they said it's necessary to circumcise and direct them to observe the law of Moses. They, they uh, still need to follow uh, the dictates of the Old Testament law. And so what comes out of this is a letter that is circulated amongst all the churches where it basically says, look, Gentiles, uh, you don't have to follow these things anymore uh, because as Paul said, as I just read to you a moment ago from Colossians 2, these things are just shadows. The substance is Christ. They're shadows. They are picturing what Messiah was ultimately going to do. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle writes, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Why don't we practice Passover in the church? Because it's a shadow. Christ Messiah, our Passover has been sacrificed. Now the only exception is would be found in 1 Corinthians 9, and let me just turn there. Uh, this is a, a, a familiar passage to many of us. Paul says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, Gentiles as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, that I may by all means save some. So Paul said, look, I'm willing to adapt my behavior if it means winning someone to the Lord Jesus. So he's not going to become unnecessarily offensive. So for instance, if Paul went into a Jewish home that was still practicing the dietary laws that are found in two principal Old Testament chapters, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, um, and uh, they were, uh, you know, practicing those laws, Paul would put himself under the law, though himself not under those ceremonial laws. Why? Because he didn't want to unnecessarily be offensive. He wanted to be all things to all men that he might win some. And so if he went into a Gentile home where they were serving barbecued pork sandwiches, he would eat one. Why? Because, again, um, he recognizes that he's not bound to the dietary laws because Jesus declared all meats clean. And he wouldn't want to say, well, I'm Jewish and I'm not going to eat pork No, he would gladly have a pork sandwich uh, to be able to relate to those Gentiles and to give them the most important thing, namely the gospel of Christ. So your friend is what I'm trying to say is really out of balance here. and does not understand the overarching principles of God's word uh, that direct us how we should behave. All right. Good question. I think we've had some more come in, and uh, let's go to the next one. We have indeed. Uh, Let me widen the screen a tad. There we go. Uh, Our next caller says that on Sunday, you were teaching out of Daniel and mentioned the Ten Nations. Uh, The caller is wondering if the United States is one of those nations. Well, I will will just say hold on to your seat because uh, we will will come to this in our exposition of of Daniel. Um, Of course, we know from the revived Roman Empire— there will be a, a, a ten nation coalition, 
And over the course of, uh, you know, the last 50 years, there have been two basic positions. One would say it would come out of the western leg of the former Roman Empire. So it would be a coalition of nations, maybe the economic, uh, you know, the European Union, uh, formerly called the EC. EC. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Maybe it will come out of the eastern leg, which would be a coalition of Arab nations. I don't think we can definitively say, but I'm watching both very carefully. And I do know that by the time the tribulation period takes place, that this 10 nation coalition will form or uh, already have been formed. Remember, nothing prophetically has to happen for the rapture of the church to take place. Uh, The rapture could have taken place one day after Pentecost, if God so chose. Uh, We believe in the imminent return of Christ. There are some Christians who think there's all kinds of prophecy that needs to take place because they make the rapture, the catching up of the church, and the second coming one simultaneous event. So for them, it's a sad, sad, sad day because Christ cannot come today. Why? Because uh, the Antichrist has to come. Uh, The temple has to be defiled. Uh, Some get around all of that and they say all those prophecies were fulfilled in the first century. No, that's really an abuse and a spiritualization of the word of God. And it misrepresents how uh, God had established a pattern that um, all of the prophecies concerning the first coming of Messiah were literally fulfilled. And I think that's how we can expect the prophecies concerning the second coming. Now, some might argue, if you take the Western branch view of the Ten Nation Coalition, that the United States, quote unquote, could be included in that, and that we are, for the most part, European in nature, though that has certainly changed a lot in recent years. Uh, But lay that aside, he is speaking not of the United States formally. He is speaking of a coalition of ten kings, ten prime ministers, ten presidents, ten horns, that are going to come together. And then there's a little horn that is going to come up among them, the prophet Daniel says. An 11th nation, so to speak, that will take precedence over three of those nations who obviously don't agree with this man's uh, program, but he'll explain it to them real clearly, and they will soon agree. And uh, that 11th horn, so to speak, will be the Antichrist, the beast, Uh, the little horn, the willful king, the son of perdition, scores of names given to him in the word of God. And he will lead a one world government. And I believe God is setting the stage for that. Um, And we will, we will see who this big mouth is uh, as the uh, prophet describes him. All right, let's go to the next question. All right. Very good. Brenda from Guyton, Georgia writes, uh, when asked the question, did Jesus turn the water into fermented wine at the wedding feast at Cana? What would your answer be? Seems to me that those who drink alcohol use this as their go-to reason that not only did Jesus himself drink, but he heartily approved it as an acceptable beverage for party goers. I even heard a pastor recently say it was acceptable for life groups to serve alcohol as long as there was no drunkenness. Well, it says, and on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also invited, uh, was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman. Uh, That's not a derogatory term, by the way. Uh, That was a term of respect. A woman, 
what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw out some and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have become drunk, when men have drunk freely, uh, some translations say have become drunk, but I think the new American standard and the body of the text, like the King James properly structures it. When men have be- have drunk freely, the NIV, which is a little more loose and uh, less than literal and done by a, a group of translators, some who did not even hold to biblical infallibility. When men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer you have kept the good wine until now. So I noted only one translation argues uh, that here's what took place. They were having a wedding. The wine uh, ran out. Jesus did a miracle and they tasted the wine and they said, wow, this is unbelievable. This is like the best wine we've had. Uh, This doesn't make sense. Usually what you do is you serve the best wine first And then when people are loaded and can't stand up and can't tell the difference, you bring out the cheap stuff, the Muscatel, whatever cheap brand you can consider. But you seem to do the opposite. And so what they are basically saying, and there's only one English Bible that I know, there's, you know, there's over 250 English translations. We we, we just have something that most cultures of the world do not have. Now, you probably know a half a dozen of them. But there's over 250 English translations, and I deal with this and address these issues in our course on bibliology. If this is a study that would be helpful to you to understand how we got the English Bible, you can go to searchthescriptures.org and listen to section six on that course. But there's only one English translation that I am aware of that renders it as such, and that's the New International Version. Listen to me, that, that, I think that is really a blasphemous way to address uh, what is being said here. It's an alternative way. You could certainly render the Greek that way, as noted in the margin of the New American Standard. Uh, but I don't think that's what's in view, because basically what they're saying is uh, people were getting high, and so Jesus made more wine to make them higher. And, but what's unusual is he, he served the best stuff last. I don't think that's what's in view. In fact, the Bible nowhere here emphasizes the uh, kind of wine, but it does speak of the quality of wine. The word oinos, uh, translated wine, is a word that would be used interchangeably in the word of God of both fermented and unfermented wine. And that's true in Hebrew. And so the context determines it. If you go today to Israel and you celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, they will provide wine. Sometimes it's grapefruit juice, and sometimes it's wine that is very similar in taste to maybe a fermented beverage, but there's no fermentation in it because they haven't added all the natural 
uh, or unnatural, you might say, sugars that maybe are put in some of the grape juices of our today. But when a, when a, when a grape was squeezed, they didn't call it grape juice in deference to fermented wine. They called it oinos or yayan. And so it depended on the age, whether it had fermented or not. So I think this is what's happening. You know, you come over to my house and there's a party and we plan for it. And so we buy, you know, Coke Zero and, you know, Dr. Pepper and so forth. And we serve roast beef and we make it really nice. And but people keep coming or people keep eating and we start running out of food. So I go into the pantry there and I bring out, you know, this stuff we brought, gave to our kids when they were young, you know, Dr. Wiz and uh, uh, cola, uh, but not Coca-Cola and check zero or whatever it is. And uh, we run out of roast beef. So we start serving bologna. That's really what's in view here. I don't think for a second that Jesus participated in making people drunk. That's sheer blasphemy. And listen, Um, you know, you can't just say, well, Jesus made wine. Therefore he gave permission to drink wine, not in light of the way this text reads, because it's very, very clear, um, because of what the head waiter, um, says to the bridegroom, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that, which is poor, you've kept the good wine until now. So you're going to render that verse one of two ways. Those who have become drunk and he's making them drunker. And to me, that's blasphemy. Then you are saying that Jesus participated in helping others to sin. So I don't think for a moment that Jesus made fermented wine. In fact, I think the, the miracle would reflect who he is. He's an unfallen person. Where did wine come from? It's a result of the fall. Uh, before the fall, had Adam squeezed some grape grapes and had the juice, it would never have fermented. It is a result of the fall. Things are waxing old, to quote the old King James. The creation is rotting, and that's really what wine is. It's a rotting fruit substance, whether it's apple wine or grape wine or white wine or anything else you can think of. It's fermentation because things are decaying. There was no decay in the creation before the fall. So in my view, if the Lord Jesus is going to do a miracle, there's not going to be a taint of the fall in it. He's going to do it first class. And I think that's exactly what he did. And just logically, if you kind of work your your mind through that, it makes complete sense, right? I mean, think about it for just a moment. The first time many of my listeners who are here had a glass of wine, you had a buzz. You were feeling it. You might have even been a little silly. But, you know, it doesn't do that to you anymore. It takes you four glasses to get to that point. Listen, when does a person become drunk? Is my goal as a Christian to see how close I can get to sinning in order not to sin? Is that my goal or is my goal to say how far away from sin can I be so that I won't sin? I think it's the latter goal. Be ye holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. So Perry Noble, when he was asked not long ago, you can read it. Uh, It's on the internet, direct quotes. Many of his blogs are posted and 
oh, you know, um, don't accuse me of saying I don't drink a glass of wine. I like to have two or three. Listen, that's the kind of behavior in our day that is so negative and so destructive. And, And now you mentioned, you know, this is becoming fashionable at Bible studies. And it is, you know, people tell me this. Yeah, I go to a Bible study and they like to serve wine. Why? You know, what, what's your purpose? What's your goal? Does God want you to be a little bit buzzed? By the way, what is the greatest commandment in all of the word of God? Jesus, of course, was asked that question. He was asked specifically, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And he plainly, unequivocally, without stutter said, this is the greatest of all the commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. So if someone's a little bit buzzed, are they loving God with all of their heart? You would say, well, it, one glass of wine doesn't do that to me anymore. It takes three or four before I get a little bit buzzed. Does God want you to sin for a period of time until you reach a point where it doesn't affect you? So I sin for six months until I build an immunity in my system to one or two glasses. So now I can drink them with, with impunity. I don't think so. I, you know, I wouldn't buy that for a second. So people listening to me are going to say, Brogy, you're legalistic. No, I would say you're practicing license and you're setting a terrible example. I would not want someone to come into my home and to see a a can of beer in my refrigerator or a bottle of wine. I would not want youth to come in my home and to see that and to set that kind of precedent in their mind. Well, Carl Brogy, you know, he's a, he's a pastor. He teaches the Bible. He, he likes to drink wine. I guess it's okay for me to do it as well. Look, if you want to be liked and you want to be a pastor who's liked, then you're going to teach that and you're going to continually and habitually downgrade the commandments of God. And that's the day that we live in. And a lot of people love it. And it's all being set up for what the Bible calls the apostasy. All right, let's go to the next question. By the way, this caller from who gave me that question? Brenda from Guyton. From Guyton, Georgia. By the way, tonight we will be at exit 109 uh, at in Pooler, Georgia. Port Wentworth. Uh, Excuse me, excuse me. Port Wentworth, exit 109. Um, We'll be there tonight for a meeting uh, to, we're considering uh, planning a new church in Georgia. And so if that is of interest to you tonight, exit 109 off of Interstate 95 at the Holiday Inn Express. We'll be there from seven to eight o'clock tonight. This is a live show today. So we would love for you to uh, come. If, if you're in a good church, we don't want to take you out. But if you're in a church that has compromised God's word and you're tired of that or you're not in any church at all, and if you're in a church where you want to be a part of growing the kingdom of God, winning people to Jesus, real conversions where the life actually changes, and you are, want to be a part of a church where the Bible is actually taught, then uh, come tonight. Uh, Holiday Inn Express, exit 109 off of Interstate 95. But to this caller from Guyton, you can go online to searchthescriptures.org. I have gone through every single verse of the Gospel of John. 
I don't remember how many sermons I did, 50 or 60 or whatever it is. But if you go there, you can uh, click on John chapter 2, and it will give you this sermon in much more detail than I just answered it for you. Okay, we've got about four and a half minutes left. Time for, I guess, one more question. Tempest from Bluffton would like to know, did King Solomon practice magic? Well, um, King Solomon obviously compromised his life. He started off great, but he compromised. And at the end, he woke up to what he had done. And I think that's really the book of Ecclesiastes. But in either case, um, you know, Solomon uh, was one who definitely made some stupid mistakes. And uh, I think one of the things that God warned him not to do was to give himself to foreign women. And he did. I, I, you know, when the scripture speaks of a thousand wives, I don't think he necessarily had a physical relationship with a thousand wives. You need to understand that many of the marriages that were done in that day were marriages uh, of political convenience. So if you married this king's daughter over here, that king would be favorable to you. And you, in, it's important to realize, too, that, you know, we're dealing at a time in human history where a king might, you know, be over a village. But you wanted every village and every nook and cranny and county and state or however you want to describe the geographical locale, ideally to be under your control. And that was part of Solomon's strategy. But one of the reasons, too, is that God knew that if he gave himself to foreign women— and there was no question that he was involved physically with a number of these, plus 700 concubines, that if he would do that, that his heart would be drawn away into idolatry because some lady would come along and say, oh, Solomon, you know, I'm your wife and this is what I want you to do. And why don't you bow down and worship my God with me? And by the way, that's what's happening in America today. You've got a lot of Christian leaders who have wives who are pressuring them to acquiesce on God's biblical standard as it relates to the role of men and women in the church. Oh, why don't we have a Beth Moore Bible study? So what that she preaches on Sunday morning in churches to mix audiences? We need to have her. We love her. The women love her. You know, and this is what men are doing. And they are weak-willed men who are acquiescing to the culture instead of obeying the word of God. And so Solomon did that very, very foolishly, and he paid a tremendous price for it. And God said, because of your sin, I'm going to divide the kingdom. But because of the special relationship I had with your father, I'm not going to do it in your lifetime. I'm going to wait until your son comes to the throne. Anyway, we are out of time for today, but it's always a pleasure to be with you here on the Bible line. And if you have a particular question, you can contact us at searchthescriptures.org. There's an icon Uh, that you can bring down from one of the drop-down menus. And it says, ask Dr. Berge a question. They come in from all over the world. You got to give me a break. Uh, It takes me a while sometimes to answer them. I can speak a lot faster than I can write if I want to give you a good answer. So Rick brings them here and, and then we discuss them. Anyway, thanks for being with us. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. 